Live from London, I'm Isa Suarez in for Julia Chatterley and this is First Move and here's what you'll need to know. Flooding crisis, more than 100,000 people evacuated as heavy rains hit China. Olympics underway. The Games finally get started but COVID forces some athletes to withdraw. And subscribers struggle. Netflix growth slows as a streaming service moves into gaming. It is Wednesday, so let's make a move. Hello everyone, a very warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Wednesday. Now as global markets continue, of course, their recovery from Monday's sharp pullback and what a day that was. Maybe we should call it perhaps a Jeff Bezos-like bounce. What goes up must come down and then right back up again. As you can see, the Dow futures up uh, three-tenths of a a percent, uh, looking pretty good. Ted looking a bit weak pre-market, but we're seeing nice gains for the Dow and the S&P with reopening stocks like airlines set to rally for a second straight session after those disappointed uh, numbers we saw Monday. Europe has been enjoying a second day of gains as well. Trading may remain volatile as investors assess how really the Delta variant will impact economies. That is the key question. Meanwhile, the head of the World Health Organization today warning that a new COVID wave is underway globally. But earnings season should, I say should, continue to offer support to stocks. It is a busy week for earnings in the United States. Netflix result disappointed investors after Tuesday's closing bell. We'll have much more on that in just a moment. But Dow components, Coca-Cola and Johnson & Johnson, are both raising their full-year forecasts today. Meanwhile, in Europe, shares of UK retailer Next and the media group Future are rallying after posting encouraging numbers too. Uh, Meanwhile, if we have a look at numbers in Asia, a mixed session there. Chinese stocks seeing the best gains despite ongoing concerns over Beijing's crackdown on tech. BlackRock says it believes China's central bank could announce more stimulus soon, which would be, of course, a plus for markets. But let's begin with our drivers in Asia and really the worsening global crisis in central China. We've seen the heaviest rains on record slamming. Henan province. Officials say at least 25 people have died and another seven are missing. Our Christy Lou Stout has all the details for you. Dramatic images coming out of China's central Henan province with its capital, Zhengzhou, drenched by record-breaking rainfall. Zhengzhou is a city of 12 million, situated on the banks of the Yellow River. And authorities there say a year's worth of rain has fallen on the city in the last three days. And it's not just Zhengzhou. Streets in a dozen cities across China have been severely flooded. Among the devastating scenes out of central China people trying to drive down flooded streets and police helping those who can't make it by raft, by boat, by human chain, rescuers bringing people to safety. Many reservoirs are at or above capacity, roads impassable with power lines down and people trapped in subway cars as rushing water fills the station. Listen to this passenger who is trapped in a flooded subway car. The flood was so strong and many people were carried away by that. The remaining few of us, including a kid, were so tired and we nearly gave up. We kept holding on tight to the railing, and that's why you can see so many bruises on my arms. 
These are all bruises. This is one, two. This included two. If you don't hold on tight to that railing, it's very easy to be washed away. Authorities say more than 500 people who were trapped in Zhengzhou subways have been rescued. Twelve were found dead. And more rain is expected across Henan province over the next three days. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Must have been terrifying for so many of those people there. Thank you to Chrissy Lustout. Now to our second drive on the show today. Pfizer-BioNTech has announced plans to manufacture its vaccine in South Africa. It is partnering with local pharma company BioVac to produce shots exclusively for the African Union. David McKenzie has been following the story for us and he joins me now. Uh, David, talk me through the details of this deal and in particular how quickly they can start manufacturing the vaccines. Well, it is very good news, say public health officials, Issa, because it means that there will be mRNA technology vaccines produced on the African continent here uh, in South Africa and then distributed to countries within Africa solely. Now, that could be up to 100 million doses. The timeline, Issa, is uh, certainly a few months and hopefully by 20. Uh, 22 next year, they'll get those doses off the shelves. But it could make a big difference in a continent where there's very low vaccine coverage. Isa? Yeah, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, David, BioVac is only handling the final phase of the manufacturing. It will still rely on Pfizer uh, facilities in Europe to make the vaccine substance and then ship them over to South Africa. What of the negotiations for a waiver at WTO or on the question of intellectual property? Is this a way to stave off those calls, you think? I think it will be a, it certainly is a strategy of the company to try to stave off those calls. Pfizer and other pharmaceutical companies have been very loath to obviously have those waivers put in at the WTO because they say they did the research, they spent the money and they came up with these vaccines which have been done in record time. Others like the governments of South Africa and India say that it's important to waive those intellectual property rights to allow the entire globe to get vaccines. And there is a huge issue with vaccine inequity. Less than 2% of the African uh, population across the continent has been vaccinated fully. Uh, so this seems to be a middle way at this point. The company says that they will uh, get the raw materials for manufacturing the vaccines from Europe, but then physically make them and manufacture them and use the technology to do it in South Africa and then distribute across the continent. So in the medium term, it will make a big difference. In the short term, there are several months uh, that the continent faces of a very difficult COVID pandemic. Yeah, let's talk about those next few months. What happens, David, if wealthy countries, for example, start seeking, needing booster shots for their populations? What kind of impact does that have on the vaccines being made in South Africa? Well, there are still uh, countries that have far more vaccine doses than they actually need. I think of mm. Canada as an example, but there are many, many examples uh, in wealthy countries that have, uh, according to critics, hoarded vaccines. Now, I think it's important that this facility will be based in South Africa and through a partnership. So the impact will be, I think, nothing at this point, except if that raw material is needed for those booster shots and is prioritized, then you could see a situation like we saw uh, earlier this year with the COVAX facility, the, uh, the vaccine alliance to get poorer countries vaccines, when the Indian uh, government stopped the export 
of uh, vaccines produced there. So it's still tenuous times, and there is a threat if this uh, inequity continues that uh, people who need the vaccines won't get them. But at this stage, it does appear it's one avenue that at least in a few months will have a significant impact. Yeah, a step in the right direction at least. David begins it for us there in Johannesburg. Thanks very much, David. Great to see you. I want to stay with the COVID-19 crisis, but actually takes you to Asia. Indonesia overtaking India, really, to become the new epicenter in the region as a Delta variant sweeps through the area. And Thailand is suffering its worst outbreak of the pandemic. Anna Corrin's live for us in Hong Kong with the very latest. Uh, and Anna, Southeast Asia being hit incredibly hard by the Delta variant, in particular Indonesia as well as South Korea. Talk us through where the virus is surging and what governments are doing to try to keep a lid really on the surging cases. Isha, let's start with Indonesia because it is the fourth most populous nation in the world. It's a developing country. It has a high poverty rate. It has an extremely low vaccination rate. It is the perfect breeding ground for COVID particularly this highly contagious uh, Delta variant. Last week, they experienced their their highest uh, daily records of of 56,000 cases. Today, it was down to like 33,000 daily cases, but they did have a record number of deaths, almost 1,400 deaths. And this just seems uh, to be climbing. As you mentioned, you know, this is now Asia's epicenter. It's overtaken India as far as the pandemic is concerned. Uh, an NGO in Indonesia accused the government of vastly underreporting the number of deaths. Now, the national government says they are not to blame, that uh, it's local governments providing inadequate uh, information, uh, that death certificates don't say COVID on them. So they're not counted as COVID deaths. Now, this is something that we understand local governments are not doing, hence the the uh, under-reporting. I think it's also important to note, Issa, that it is Eid, uh, Indonesia being a predominantly Muslim country celebrating this religious holiday. And even though there are government restrictions in place, curfews in place, uh, people are still gathering, families are still coming together. So authorities are concerned that they will see a surge in cases in the coming weeks. The health system, ESA, which is, is already you know under pressure in normal days, um, if cases continue, it will be overwhelmed. And, and once again, you know, more concerns that they won't be able to cope. The vaccination rate uh, in Indonesia is just 6%, woefully low. Yeah, that is staggering. And, you know, I was looking at the numbers, Anna, and I saw Singapore also being slammed by the virus, which is a major setback for a country that was seen by many as a pandemic success story. Yeah, look, Singapore and South Korea both were heralded as countries that were success stories. They, they got the pandemic under control very, very, very early, you know, in in, in the, 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 the rollout, really, um, of, of this, uh, this hideous virus. Um, Singapore, you mentioned, has been slammed. Um, you know, this is a first world country and they thought they had it under control. Um, they experienced their highest number of cases from August last year. Today, case numbers were around 179. It may not sound like a lot, but as I say, for a country that, that prides itself on, on reopening and saying that it can live with um, the virus, you know, this is a massive blow. It's coming from two major clusters, one from karaoke bars, the, the other one from a, a fisheries 
port, but that number I gave, 179, this is the third consecutive day that cases are over 150. As for South Korea, Issa, uh, you know, they are now experiencing a fourth wave and they had record um, number of cases uh, today. Uh, it was something like 1,700 cases, um, which once again is, is not a number that is acceptable in a, you know, developed first world country. Um, we know that only 13% of the population in uh, South Korea has been vaccinated and that for the past two weeks, they've been experiencing more than a thousand cases, you know, every single day. And they don't see this uh, going away anytime soon, Isa. Yeah, troubling picture that you are just painting for us there in Southeast Asia. Anna Corrin, thank you very much. Let me turn our attention to business news. Sluggish growth wasn't the story Netflix investors were hoping for. It stuck, stock really took a hit in after hours trading on Tuesday, even though revenue jumped by nearly a fifth in the second quarter. Frank Palotta joins me now. And, and Frank, let's start with these uh, really sluggish numbers from Netflix. It did have a breakneck kind of expansion during the pandemic as more people stayed home and watched Netflix, but then it dropped. But surely that was always going to be hard to sustain in the first place. Yeah, and Netflix has said as much yesterday in their earnings report. They said that because of the pandemic, their growth has been kind of choppy and it has distorted the comparisons to last year, which was a record year. When people were stuck at home, they watched a lot of Netflix. They watched Tiger King. They watched all of those shows that we were talking about in the early parts of the pandemic. It looks like that is kind of leveled out, but there's also some questions on if the rivalries that have kind of popped up over the last year from Disney Plus to Peacock to our, our own uh, parent company's streaming service, HBO Max, has kind of chipped away at this huge growth that Netflix has had over the last decade. So now it's looking, I'm guessing, for that extra horsepower. How is it planning to do that? What's the strategy here? So if you really think about Netflix, their primary revenue driver for years has been subscribers, getting as yeah. many subscribers as possible. And Netflix has gone out of their way to say, we really want to do one thing really well, which is give great television shows and films to our users. But now they're kind of expanding into a brand new world, which is video games. They are talking yesterday, they announced and confirmed that they're expanding into video games that will be a part of the bundle itself, a part of your subscription, and that it won't be at any of extra charge and will be kind of focused on mobile gaming. So you'll pretty much be able to play it on your phone. But this is a huge moment for Netflix because it shows that they want to kind of expand into a new world and kind of changes what they've been all of these years while also giving them another revenue driver to compare with the other companies like Disney that sells Baby Yoda toys and Comcast that sells Jurassic Park theme park rides. <laughs> Baby Yoda toys, don't I remember that. Frank Palotta, great to see you. Thanks very much. Coming up on First Move, how to grow when supplies are scarce. Fishing for chips with the CEO of Global Foundries. Plus, we did it for pop. Jeff Bezos, tell us what, what was behind that giant leap into that space race. We'll bring you of those stories after a very short break. Let me bring you up to date with stories making headlines around the world this hour. The Summer Olympics are underway in Tokyo after being delayed for more than a year. Competition got started a few hours ago, even though the opening ceremony isn't until Friday. Organizers are pushing ahead with the Games despite rising COVID infections in Tokyo. So let's get more on the story. CNN Selena Wang is with us from Tokyo. And Selena, uh, we're seeing Olympic-related COVID, de- uh, COVID cases pardon me, continue to pile up. Uh, give us a sense of what the mood is like and what, how athletes are, fi- are feeling. 
Well, Isa, certainly not the normal Olympic spirit that you would expect, especially given that Tokyo is in a state of emergency and there's so little interaction between these Olympic athletes and Japanese public here, no cultural exchange, not to mention the incredible stress that these athletes are under. They have spent their whole lives, years training for this Olympic moment, and now a growing number of them are getting their Olympic dreams dashed because of a positive COVID-19 test. You have several athletes, including tennis star Coco Goff, as well as U.S. women's basketball player Katie Lou Samuelson, that are testing positive for COVID-19 before they even leave for Japan, getting their dreams completely derailed. But now, also, several athletes testing positive for COVID-19, announcing that they cannot compete after already getting to Japan. So even after going through all the hoops, following all the COVID-19 restrictions, still getting their dreams shattered. And meanwhile, here in Japan, Isa Tokyo just reported its highest number of COVID-19 cases in six months. Yeah, it must be so nerve-wracking for them, Selena. You know, having waiting for these tests, waiting for, for this moment, uh, for their moment that they've been training their whole life. We're seeing the number of cases rising uh, in the Olympic Village. Has there been any attempts, Selena, to, to really review their protocols, find out what is not working? So, Isa, there are now more than 70 COVID-19 cases in Japan linked to these Olympic Games. Just a few of them are athletes in the Olympic Village. But there is growing concern that this Olympic bubble is actually not working and that these cases could then spill into the broader population. One public health expert, Kenji Shibuya, told me that this bubble is already broken and he's concerned with just 20% of the Japanese population here that this could be a major problem. But these Olympic officials are saying that the fact that they are catching these COVID-19 cases shows that their system is working. They say that more than 70 COVID-19 cases is potentially even lower than what they expected. There is a long list of rules that all Olympic participants have to follow including regular testing, contact tracing, social distancing, the list goes on and on. But again, this public health expert, Kenji Shibuya, he tells me they aren't enough. He says it's impossible to completely control the movements of Olympic participants and to prevent them from interacting with the public here. He also criticizes the fact that Olympic participants are not required to quarantine for a full 14 days. And ESA vaccines are not required, even though most Olympic athletes will be vaccinated. But also, they aren't 100 percent. We're also seeing several cases of people testing positive for COVID-19, people related to these games after being fully vaccinated. Isa? <laughs> Selena Wang there for us in Tokyo. Thanks very much, Selena. Now there's public outrage in India after the government said Tuesday there had been no documented COVID-19 deaths due to lack of oxygen. CNN has reported on Indian hospitals experiencing oxygen shortages. Studies show that India's COVID-19 death toll is up to 10 times higher than the official 400,000 count. The National Guard in the United States uh, state of Oregon is helping firefighters combat a massive wildfire. The bootleg fire is the largest in the country right now, having consumed more than 150,000 hectares. It's one of the more than 80 large fires that have hit 13 U.S. states this fire season. Let me bring you another check of U.S. stock markets and the Dow and the S&P are set to advance for a second straight session. They have regained virtually all of what they lost during Monday's sell-off and they remain less than 2% or so away 
from record highs. Excuse me. Benchmark U.S. bond yields are ticking slightly higher too after falling to five-month lows earlier this week on, of course, those fresh COVID affairs and what relates to the Delta variant. Concern about how central banks will deal with rising inflation as well as ongoing economic uncertainties remain, as you can imagine, front and center for bond investors as well. And then there's a divided ECB. They're meeting tomorrow to discuss the way forward on the question of stimulus. The Fed holds another policy meeting next week and Fed officials will surely continue their debate on when to dial back bond purchases. Joining me now is Jeff Klentob, the Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Jeff, plenty for us to get our teeth to. Look, let's start with the stock markets. It's been a a pretty wild and I think it's fair to say miserable week uh, so far because of those rising infection numbers and concerns over the Delta variant. What kind of summer should investors be expecting here given the surging cases? Well, a volatile one, as we've already started to see. It's hard to expect that the Delta variant data, that the news flow will get a lot better in the near term. And that really is the key driver in the markets. But not every day is to the downside. Obviously, Monday was a terrible day. Interestingly, today we're seeing travel and leisure stocks, the best performers in Europe that could spill over to the U.S. markets as well. So again, those are the stocks most sensitive to the idea of will we get the full reopening? Or will we not? Will we head back towards lockdowns? Uh, a clear barometer, that relationship, in fact, between airline stocks and Internet retailers, of course, the old pandemic winners, uh, will be, will be uh, that back and forth, I think, that we're likely to see over the course of this summer. Ultimately, though, Isa, I think the cyclicals will win out. I think the reopening trade, the reinflation trade will come back to this market maybe later, maybe in the fall, maybe in the winter. But ultimately, I think the value stock, uh, the, the value stocks, the uh, those most tied to the reopenings, will ultimately be the winners. But Jeff, what, what what's changed between Monday and today? I mean, there's always been a known unknown for some time that you know there will be more variants, there will be uh, happening, and so what these fears going forward are they going to be sustained? And if so, what should central banks be doing? Well, I, I think I think part of the give and take on a daily basis has to do with whether the case numbers will translate into increased hospitalizations and deaths. So far in the UK, the, you know, a, a very vaccinated population, we're seeing they're not. And, and there's that 15, 14, 15 day lag between new cases and, and, and deaths, which we have to watch very closely if those deaths and hospitalizations remain low, suggesting the health systems are not being overrun, then that suggests the reopenings may continue. And that's what I think central banks need to focus on. It's very morbid, but they need to take a look at what are the probabilities of a return to economic restrictions in some way that would, in fact, do their work for them in slowing the pace of inflation. Yeah, and as you're talking, we're looking at the S&P 500 year to date. Just a week ago, we saw the Dow and the S&P at record highs. So, you know, this this volatile week that we've seen so far, especially on Monday, we saw that drop from the Dow. Was this basically a time for a correction? Well, perhaps. I mean, it's been a while since we've had one, and and they're fairly standard uh, in any given year. And there are certainly ingredients that would suggest we could be ripe for one now. But what's been interesting is there have been corrections within the market, even though the overall market has continued to make new highs and is still fairly close to them. 
within the market, the rotation's been dramatic. Again, as I said, between value and growth stocks, uh, there have been major moves between cyclicals and defenses. There have been major moves, large and smaller cap stocks. And, and so there have been masked corrections within that overall move. I'm a little cautious that the S&P 500 can continue to move higher on defensive leadership, on lockdown era winners. Uh, I, I think that's uh, that's probably at risk. We've got to see the cyclicals come back to really see the S&P advance to solid new highs. What is clear against this backdrop, you know, whether it's policy earnings or economic activity, Jeff, is that the markets are trying to try to identify future growth opportunities. Where would you say these are right now, Jeff? Uh, one of the most attractive areas right now is in green infrastructure, both in the U.S. Biden administration's plan for an infrastructure spending plan, as we look at uh, the, the new Green Deal in Europe finally being rolled out and, and funded, and China looking to clean up its uh, production as well. You've got a lot of money moving into, and I mean billions, perhaps even trillions of dollars moving into green infrastructure. At the same time, investors are looking at ESG solutions, environmental, social, governments solutions to how they invest. I think a lot of that comes together and creates perhaps the next bubble of this decade, only now just starting to inflate. You've heard it here first, people. Jeff Clintov, the Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Thanks very much, Jeff. Great to see you. You are watching First Move. The market is open next. We shall bring you the numbers after a very short break. Do stay right here. Welcome back to First Move. Now U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. Let's have a look at how they are trading. They're faring this hour. And as expected, we are seeing uh, some positive gains, at least for the Dow and the S&P, as global stocks continue to recover from Monday's drubbing. The Dow Jones there, uh, four-tenths of a percent. That's despite, of course, the recent volatility. Uh, the major U.S. averages are still less than 2% away, really, from all-time highs and are up double digits so far this year, as you can see there for the Dow, 12%, S&P 500 up 15%, NASDAQ uh, hovering around the same amount. Netflix shares that we mentioned early in the show beginning the session lower after offering a tepid forecast for subscriber growth. But Coca-Cola and Johnson & Johnson are gaining after raising their full-year forecast. Now, tech investors, meantime, are monitoring the ongoing flooding crisis in Central Asia. That was our lead this hour. A major Apple contractor, Foxconn, says its iPhone factory in the region has not been impacted by that. Meanwhile, at least 25 people have died and tens of thousands have been evacuated in what has been called the worst flooding in the region in recent history. Now, German carmaker Daimler says it won't sell as many cars as it hoped this year because it simply cannot get enough semiconductors. The pairing company of Mercedes-Benz says demand isn't a problem with economies reopening, but amid a global ship shortage, it can't build vehicles fast enough. And a student... Stuart's been following this story and joins me now. And Anna, how badly has Daimler been affected by this ship shortage and ship crisis? And how long, critically, does it envisage this to last? Well, they posted a $4.3 billion quarterly profit, but they've had to very much focus on the higher margin models. Overall, they have slashed production. They did last year, they have had to this year, and they will continue to do so, they say, until 2022 or some period within there. And this is due, as you say, to a shortage in semiconductors, something that we were talking about well over a year ago, continues to loom large over the Daimler and, of course, the rest of the sector. The problem, of course, is while last year demand for new cars had crashed, this year they are rebounding. So as you say, the demand is there, but the shortage in the chips is what's holding it all back. And of course, the, uh, the nature of the auto industry moving ever closer towards electric and autonomous vehicles, they're going to need more semiconductors. And frankly, the capacity of these 
chip makers around the world are at 100% capacity and they're not increasing it at pace with the increasing demand. And you know what? The auto sector accounts for just 10% of the overall chip market. And there aren't very many of them. It's a really consolidated industry. Many of those chip makers are in Asia. So this is probably a problem actually beyond the current shortage. Issa? Yeah, I'll be speaking to chip maker in just a moment. But, you know, I, Daimler, I suspect, Adam, from the picture you're painting, is not the only car maker in Europe that has had to cut back production because of the shortage. Paint us a picture of the toll it has taken on the European auto industry and how they're trying to manoeuvre, get around this, basically. Well, I think it's been very interesting that actually Europe and the EU Commission in particular Mm. are very concerned about security when it comes to semiconductors, particularly given so many of them are in Asia. There are risks beyond the pandemic, geopolitical risks of China or uh, natural disasters, particularly given so many of the conductors are actually made in Taiwan. So actually there is a plan from the EU Commission to double their market share in the global chip market by 2030. But speaking to analysts, Issa, that is incredibly ambitious, ludicrously expensive, really, considering how few fab facilities there are on the continent. And also you've got to consider the entire ecosystem of the semiconductors because it's not just the chip makers themselves. It's, of course, all the supply chains globally that feed into it. So speaking to analysts today, that is going to be very difficult. But bolstering security for automakers is key. And I think we've very much seen it in the last two years. Any kind of plan to double the market share in Europe will take many years. So it is not going to help automakers anytime soon. Yeah, it's not a short term solution, is it? Anna Stewart there for us. Thanks very much, Anna. Well, as a ship crunch stalls delivery of everything from cars to smartphones, chip makers are racing to boost capacity, as Anna was pointing out. Among them is one of the world's largest suppliers, U.S. manufacturer Global Foundries. It has just unveiled plans to build a second New York plant and says it expects to invest $6 billion worldwide over the next two years. Joining me is Tom Coldfield, the CEO of Global Foundries. Tom, great to have you on the show. Uh, I'm not sure whether you could hear uh, Anna Stewart there talking about the crisis in terms of ship shortage at Daimler. I want to get your uh, your view, your sense of how hard it has been to keep up with demand. Well, first, uh, good morning and thanks for having me on the show, uh, Isa. Well, I listened to all of that. It was spot on on all the points you made, not only the, uh, the, the difficulty with the auto industry, the idea of the, uh, of, of the ambitious plans to create a, a more global footprint. All of that is just spot on. Uh, I, I think if I put it in a nutshell to you, the biggest way to, th- to think about this problem is it took 50 years for the semiconductor industry to become a half a trillion dollars. The demand we see that you know, society, you, you know, the, the economy, humankind needs, it needs us to double that in the next uh, five to, to 10 years. And so the, 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 the challenge ahead is how do you get all that capacity on given the complexity of the technology and the capital intensity of the technology? So let, let's talk about that. And let's talk about how your company can try and address at least uh, this global crisis, global chip shortage. What is, the, what is the strategy from your side? You know, I, I don't know if it's the strategy just for, for GF. I think it's the strategy for the industry. Yeah. The economic model that, that allowed for a 50-year growth to where we are today will not be the economic model that will allow us to, to put the kind of capacity on we need to do. And, and what it means is it's more about partnership. Uh, you know, governments need to participate in the investments. Customers who rely on this capacity need to participate in those investments. And, of course, manufacturers like GF, we need to do our part. And those three things will need to come together in a way to make sure the economics work for not only the manufacturing of, of the chips, but the entire ecosystem and all the components that we need 
to do what we do, including the equipment, the, the raw wafers, the chemicals and gases that are very specialized for our industry. Uh, you mentioned the government there, Tom. I mean, the U.S. Senate, uh, I believe, has authorized uh, more than 50, $52 billion, I think, plan, a billion for semiconductor manufacturing for new factories as well as ship research. Do, do you think that is enough in your view? No, we, we know we're asked this question all the time, and I think it's, it's a really important perspective. It's a great start. And what, yeah. you'll, what we'll find is that the economic benefit of making those investments will make it easy to make the next round of investments. So instead of debating how much should we do on day one and is it enough, just let's, let's demonstrate when you start to make these investments and see the economic activity that it creates in the economy, that you'll want to make you know, these investments again because they have great returns. So, but let me ask you what the point that Anna was making that we're seeing in Europe is that, you know, Europe wants to see more factories being built, but building factories, you know, takes time. So what is the short term plan in trying to deal with this crisis here? Well, I, you know, first of all, I, I'm a proponent of you know, set large, ambitious goals. And, and even if you get most of the way there, it's better than not doing that. And so I, I understand why Europe wants to do this. It's, it's important for you know, economic security, sovereign security, supply chain security. Now, you know, from GF, we have a, a, one of our most you know, largest and major facility in Dresden, Germany. And, and over the next two years, as you talked about that, that, that $6 billion we're spending, you know, a good fraction of that's going into that facility uh, to create, in, in many ways, more than double the output you know, you know, from what we did in 2020 for what we'll be able to do in, in, by the end of 2022. The rate and pace, of how capacity gets put on is really a question of how quickly the equipment companies can make these very sophisticated and complex machinery for us. And then for us to install it, qualify it, and start making product. Typically, this is in an 18-month cycle. So this is not something that within a couple weeks or months you can you can correct, but you have to be very thoughtful, uh, bold, and, uh, and try to accelerate that as much as possible. Uh, you probably don't get asked this very often, but what, is there anything that's keeping you up at night, late at night, any awake? Uh, does, do you worry, Tom, about the growth? You know, it's an incredible pace at the moment for your company. Uh, but then the concern of going from boom to bust, is this, is this something that worries you? Yeah, you know, I, there, there are two what I call myths that go around the industry that, that quite honestly, they just don't resonate with me and, and I don't quite get we can't all believe this industry is going to double over the next eight years and that somehow we're going to have too much capacity when we have to do what it took 50 years and eight years. And, and while I think the, the, there'll be a, a closing of the gap between demand and supply, especially given some of the acceleration we're all doing now, you know, for me, the better part of the next five to, to eight years is we're going to be more likely chasing supply than we are chasing mm -hmm. demand. So that, that's not what keeps me up at night. I think what it keeps me up at night is, is a little bit about how do we keep our customers kind of whole and keeping the momentum of what society needs, right, in a, in a, in a thoughtful way, make the right allocations of where we, where we have capacity to go help industries. That's the stuff that keeps me up at night. It's, it's, it's a lot easier, I think, to run a company where, you know, you control your, your destiny and you can fix it when, you, when others are depending on you and you can't give them everything they want. It puts a lot more pressure on you. You, you, want, you know, make sure you're not disappointing anybody. It's such a good point. Uh, uh, but I imagine with so much demand, uh, maybe this is a good time for Global Foundries to go public. Are you accelerating your plan? <laughs> yeah, we get this asked uh, a lot. I should have a, probably a better answer for this. Look, I, I think about <laughs> for us about going public. It's, it's, it's not about a milestone. It's you know, when, when do we get an advantage for doing that? And at some point, it's going to make sense to have access to 
to, to public markets to uh, accelerate our growth. We'll need you know, the, the access to that kind of capital. And at the right time, we'll do that. Right now, you know, we have a, a game plan that we're executing the team of 15,000 employees worldwide in global foundries. I mean, they do miracles every day for us. They're, they're focused. We're building more. We're putting more output out than we've ever done in our history. And, and we're accelerating capacity expansions. And that's, that's job number one for us to stay focused on doing our mission. And before you go, I, you know, I would love you to help me to put some rumors to rest. Wall Street Journal reporting uh, that Intel is looking to buy your company for something like 30 billion. Um, have you been approached? Look, this is this is what happens. You know, this is all rumor and speculation as you know, chips become more and more in the news every day. Right. Not for what we do, for when we don't do enough of it. And GF has a you know, pretty prominent and vital role in all of this, then all of a sudden you'll see a lot of speculation about companies like GF, especially when they're privately held. I could tell you, we have a game plan. We are focused you know, onward to do all the things we just spoke about. Tom Caulfield, we wish you all the best of luck. The CEO of Goldman Foundries there. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Right after the break, building a road to space. Jeff Bezos tells our Anderson Cooper why his Blue Origin rocket is more important to the world than Amazon. You don't want to miss that interview. That's next. What's next for billionaire Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin? Well, after Tuesday's trip to the edge of space, the company's planning two more flights this year with paying passengers. Bezos did not go alone. Aged 82, Wally Funk became the oldest person to go into space. I've been waiting a long time to finally get it up there. I felt so charged. I was not nervous. I was, I was just normal, normal person going up into space, and that's what I wanted to feel. <laughs> love Wally. I love her energy too. Also back on the ground, Jeff Bezos and his brother Mark spoke to Anderson Cooper about their greatest inspiration. Take a listen. You've been dreaming of space your whole life. You spent summers on your granddad's ranch yep. in South Texas. Mm-hmm. I imagine looking up at the sky and the stars. Uh, absolutely. What do you think your grandfather would think about you? And- we, so we, we called him Pop, and uh, he was a gigantic figure in our lives. We spent a lot of time with him. Uh, I think he would have been, if he were here, he would have been the most proud, most excited uh, of all the people present. So he had this curiosity about him and this wonder. When we knew him, he was a rancher, but before that he had you know done a lot of, he worked for DARPA at one point and mm-hmm. did other things. So he had all this you know exploration in him. He might have been in the vehicle with you. He would have. I mean, there's a long line of people trying to stow away in that vehicle this morning, <laughs> including our dad. Uh, yeah, we had to check the balance. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've called this the most, you've called Blue Origin the most important thing that you will do in your entire career. I mean, you built Amazon. That's pretty huge. You employed half a million people. How can Blue Origin be bigger? Well, I or think... Or more important? Yeah, I think the th- way to think about this is... Um, you know, we need to build a road to space, build, I mean build infrastructure, reusable space vehicles and so on, so that the next generations can build the future. You talked about the infrastructure you already had in place when you started doing Amazon. You had the Postal Service. You had Exactly. So, you know, when, when I started Amazon, I was, a, you know, a young guy, and this is 27, almost 30 years ago, and I didn't have to build a package delivery system, it existed. Mm. It was called the Postal Service and UPS and Royal Mail and Deutsche Post and so on. That would have been hundreds of billions of dollars in capital expense to build. So if some smart kid in a dorm room right now has a dream for space, they can't do it. They can't do it. 
That's exactly right. And 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 but if we can lay that infrastructure, then do that hard work, then there will be able to be a bunch of entrepreneurs. Maybe that the young guy Oliver who flew with us today, maybe he'll be one of them. What, what does that look like, though? I mean, what does this road look like? I mean, you've talked about uh, a human presence on the moon. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you know, Elon Musk is talking about Mars. Yeah. What does it look like? There, and there are a couple of things. One of the things is that it's, uh, it's really about moving heavy industry. I know this sounds fantastical, and it is fantastical. But remember, if you went back to the Kitty Hawk era and showed them a 787, they would think that's fantastical. Mm. But we really have to move heavy industry and polluting industry off Earth. So Earth is too nu- small. Nuclear and too power plants, Everything. coal we plants. To, we need to beam the energy down to Earth. We'll make it in space, probably solar. We'll beam it down. When we make chips and microchips and everything else, all that dirty, polluting stuff, we will make it in space and, and, and do those, those activities in space. It'll be much better. This planet is so precious, Anderson, and you, you can see it. What we saw today, we got up there and we looked out. We see when we're on the ground, we think the atmosphere is big. But really, the atmosphere is tiny. Mm. It's this tiny little fragile, thin layer, and we all depend upon it for our lives. And we've got to stop polluting it. Uh, so that is something that, but that can't be done today. If you try to move heavy industry off Earth today, that's just crazy. So what is the timeline for something like that? Decades, multiple decades. It won't be done in my lifetime. But what I can do, and what we, the whole Blue Origin team can do, is lay the foundation for that work. That's what we mean when we say build a road to space. Because then there'll be other people driving on that road, and they'll do much greater things than we will do. Why do you want to have people on the moon? The moon is a great place for resources. It's close, which is a big advantage. So one of the great things about the moon is it has a very low gravity. You know, one-sixth gravity takes 27 times less energy to lift a pound of material off the moon than it does to lift a pound of material off the Earth. Hmm. And so if you want to build big structures in space... You want to go get materials from the moon. Hmm. The um, obviously you've stepped down as CEO of Amazon. You'll have a little more time on your hands. Uh, are you going to focus more on on Blue Origin and how much more? I know you've been liquidating like a billion dollars worth of Amazon stock every year to fund it. Are you going to do more than that? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see about that. I'm also using a lot of Amazon stock for the Bezos Earth Fund. So hmm. the, the two big initiatives that I know of right now that I'm going to focus on are Blue Origin and the Bezos Earth Fund, which is all about sustainability, climate change, uh, you know, protecting the natural world, those things that we have to work on the here and now of that too. So, you know, Blue Origin is working on the future, uh, but we have to work on the here and now of that as well. Elon Musk told the Washington Post, your newspaper, that if Blue Origin is to be successful, you should run it full time, and he hopes you do that. Well, uh, Bob... Smith is the CEO of Blue Origin, and he's running it amazingly well. He's, he's been here only a few years. He's doing a great job. I'm not taking Bob's job, okay. but I am going to spend more time on it. I'm going to have the time to spend on it. Uh, so I'm going to be right in there, you know, rolling up my sleeves deep in it. <laughs> Jeff Bezos speaking to Anderson Cooper about his vision, the road to the moon. Uh, you are watching First Move. We'll have much more after a very short break. Do stay right here with CNN. Now, unlocking the massive market in Africa. In today's Connecting Africa, Eleni Jokas sits down with the CEO of Mara Group to discuss its growing businesses, including smartphones. I want you to take me back to when you were thinking about Mara phones and bringing manufacturing capacity on the continent. And you're basically starting from scratch. What does it take to build that kind of capacity 
from zero? It was a tough and long journey because putting up assembly is a lot easier and it's a lot simpler. But in the true sense, that's not shifting the narrative for our continent. It's not making us a high-tech, high-precision manufacturing destination like you and I would like and many others would like. At the same time, when you think about why that is not happening, there's a psychological block about is it because of human capital? And that's wrong because there's loads of amazing electricians and electrical engineers and people hungry to learn. Do you think that we're going to go to a point where it'll be made in Africa and that Africa can control a large part of global manufacturing capacity where it will be respected, like what we've seen coming through from Asia? It's a really good point, Annie. And I think absolutely, eventually, yes. But I think there's a transition to that, right? And the baby steps are that, firstly, we're such huge consumers as a continent, right? When you think about over a billion people, um, we've got the Africa continental free trade area now making us one market in the true sense. To what extent do you think we can truly meet up that, to that expectation of digitalizing Africa if we don't actually put a smartphone, a smartphone in the hands of people, even in the most re- remote areas of the continent? We need to truly transition people. And frankly, networks are there. Everything is there. The key element has been affordability and quality. You can get really cheap phones, but they won't last, and that doesn't help. As much as we want to digitalize, we still need, you know, the infrastructure. Yes. Yeah. Are you feeling optimistic that we can get that done? And what does it really take? Because even though you're in the, you know, the tech space and you're in, in digitalization, you still needed to build a factory. When Mara did this, we didn't do it with the intention of making a quick buck. Of course, we're in it for the long run, and we're in it to create a huge amount of value. But practically, we did it to shift the narrative that we as Africa can do this and can do it without compromising, without cutting corners, without, you know, kind of doing it piecemeal. If we do it, we do it properly and it's possible. Helen Jock is there. Well, that's it for this show for this hour. Thank you very much for watching. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Do stay right here. We'll see you. Bye bye. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.